Hey everyone and welcome back to the weekly Linux and open source news podcast where I talk a lot <laughs> about Linux and open source if you didn't guess already. So this week we have the first plans to support HDR, variable refresh rate and proper color management on Linux. We also have new chips from AMD which will turn the question when will we have good ARM devices to run Linux on into why do we even need ARM devices in the first place? And we have Microsoft abusing their dominant position in the OS market to push Edge even further. We also have updates on Linux Mint, a new immutable Fedora spin-off, and a lot more. So as always, all the links to the articles I used are in the show notes. You'll also find links to my YouTube channel where I make three videos per week about Linux and open source projects. And as always, this podcast is user-funded for now, so if you enjoy it without ads and sponsors, don't hesitate to check out the links in the show notes to support the show. So, let's get into it. So, first, let's talk HDR. Uh, Linux systems just don't support HDR. Uh, whether it's on Wayland or X11, this support is just non-existent. And so there was an HDR-focused hackfest uh, that took place uh, not this week, but last week. But they only wrote up a, let's say, a summary of it uh, last week. So plans were made to tackle high dynamic range and variable refresh rates on Linux, plus color management. Uh, those are all pretty important today, especially for people who create content. Uh, because while HDR is not, for example, something I would care about on YouTube personally, because who cares for the videos that I make, uh, variable refresh rate is very important uh, if we want Linux phones to have a chance to actually use less battery, and even on certain other devices. Some laptops have variable refresh rate screens, which means that, for example, when you're browsing the web, they don't have to refresh at 60 hertz or 144 hertz. Uh, they can refresh slower than that and thus save battery. And when you're playing a game, they can refresh at the exact frame rate of the game, which is also pretty cool. So people at that hackfest defined the direction uh, to follow to implement all of this. And they identified two main use cases for HDR. The first is the one where the user just wants to play HDR content, like a movie or a video, in which case the colors need to look good. The other use case is for people creating HDR content, for whom colors need to be accurate. They also want a solution that allows mixing HDR and SDR, so standard dynamic range, what we already have on Linux currently, on the same display. So for example, you could have your HDR video playing, but you could also have the menus and everything around it uh, in standard definition, in standard dynamic range. In terms of variable refresh rate, it seems that the main issue is related to the mouse cursor, because either it moves at the maximum possible refresh rate, which disables variable refresh rate, or it moves at the set refresh rate for the game or the content you're playing. For example, a movie at 24 FPS, your mouse cursor would move at 24 FPS, but then you would get a very choppy mouse cursor experience. So those are the problems they identified and that they are looking at solutions to fix. And for color management, the end goal is to design a vendor-neutral API that compositors like Kwin on KDE or Mutter on GNOME could use to program the color pipeline for GPUs. 
and all the hardware part would be handled by the GPUs themselves because between Intel, AMD, and Nvidia, they don't all work in the same way. Some have hardware blocks dedicated to color management, some don't. So it would be better to have something that is a little higher level to define which color spaces need to be used and let the hardware render all of that. So of course, this hackfest was more a talk than actual code writing, but at least the path is set and work can begin to implement support for these much needed features, which is going to be great. Uh, I have an HDR capable display and I would love to be able to use it like that. I don't think I have anything that is variable refresh rate, but color management would be very interesting for me to make sure that you see the videos in the right way, uh, that the colors are not too weird and that when you're looking, for example, at a screen grab of one of the distros I'm reviewing, the Ubuntu Orange doesn't appear red on your display, for example. Now, it looks like Microsoft still hasn't learned its lesson in terms of abuse of dominant position as it moves to use Windows, the biggest desktop operating system, to shove Edge down the throats of even more users. They recently announced that links clicked in Outlook will now open in Edge by default and not with your default browser. This is very obviously user hostile as it forces the use of a second browser onto them, it bypasses their preferences and it will then use more resources on your PC because you'll have two browsers open at the same time. Uh, there's clearly another simpler way if they really want to do that just remove the default browser preference altogether. Be honest about it. Just say, you know what, you use Windows, it's Edge, period. That, that would be more honest. Now, all these links will open accompanied by the original email in a sidebar, in a sort of side-by-side -side view. So if you click, for example, a link in an Outlook email in your Outlook client, that will open Edge, which will have a little side window with the email, and on the main part of the window, you'll have your link, which in theory, is not a bad feature. What's bad about it is that it's in Edge and not in the browser you actually decided to use. They will also bring this change to Microsoft Teams to have your chat on a sidebar and the link in the main Edge window. Microsoft said that they will let you revert that behavior to use your default browser. But this new one will still be the default. And as we all know, a lot of users don't change the default and that's probably what Microsoft is counting on. Yet another avenue for them to make sure people just stick to Edge and keep using it and don't bother with anything else because they don't even know where to change the default browser. Now, on top of that, there's a specific Windows update that broke a Chrome feature that lets users make Chrome their default browser in one click. If you go to Chrome settings, uh, you'll very likely have a nice big pop-up on top of the settings telling you, do you want to make Chrome your default browser? Previously, clicking that made Chrome your default browser in, in uh, Windows. Now it doesn't work anymore. And this is very deliberate because if you rename Chrome to something else, it fixes the issue. So Microsoft hard-coded this bug for Chrome specifically to make sure that people did not have an easy way to change their default browser, which is a wonderful way of encouraging competition. Um, I guess Microsoft does not have anyone left from the Internet Explorer days uh, to remind them that they already got fined a lot for this exact behavior in the past and that re-implementing it with Edge is definitely not something that is going to fly for very long. 
Now, we have some interesting hardware news uh, from AMD, and it looks like the days of looking longingly at the performance per watt specs of Apple Silicon, so their M1 and M2 chips, those days might soon be over, because AMD unveiled a few details about their future chips that might put these latest M2 CPUs to shame. They are comparing their yet unreleased Ryzen 7 7840U APU to the M2 chip, and AMD comes out on top with 9% better 3D rendering performance, 72% better multiprocessing performance, and 14% better responsiveness, whatever that is, and however they can measure it, apparently it's also more responsive. Now these new chips are codenamed Phoenix, and they use 15 watts of power, which is half of what the Intel competitors use, and even less than the 20 watts of Apple's M2. Now apparently under heavy load it can go up to 28 watts, so maybe it's not going to run at 15 watts all the time, but the base TDP is really good. And that flagship Ryzen 7 packs 8 cores and an integrated Radeon 780M, which should yield 139% better performance than Intel's XE graphics on the comparable CPU on the Intel side, which is the i7-1360P. Now, these chips from AMD will obviously be ideal in Ultrabooks for a longer battery life, but might also be very useful for gaming handhelds, although AMD also announced the Z1 line uh, to specifically target this market. And that's very interesting, because supporting x86 chips on Linux is already done. Uh, yeah, sure, you have to do some adaptation for each new CPU and make sure it works well, but it's way easier than supporting a brand new ARM CPU from a specific vendor, because ARM is an architecture and most CPUs differ very much from one to the other. So you can have a baseline ARM chip support, but most of the time you're gonna have to develop a lot of stuff to support a specific ARM chip, which is not the case for x86 CPUs, which seem to work more or less in the same way most of the time. Uh, the, the latest big change was the, the hybrid architecture using efficiency cores and uh, using performance cores, but even that was supported very quickly. So this means we don't really have to want Linux devices that run with ARM CPUs that will be harder to support because it looks like x86 is actually very much capable of catching up in terms of performance per watt to what Apple is doing in ARM, at least for the general, general, let's say, middle range. I don't know if, if for super high performance chips it's going to be able to match, but at least for general purpose chips like an i7 or at least a Ryzen 7 or Ryzen 5, they're able to match it and even surpass it with the x86 architecture. So why bother uh, redeveloping all your apps and operating systems and, or at least recompile them, them specifically for ARM if x86 is able to match this? It, it, yeah, it basically nullifies the, the absolute need that could have a reason uh, to have ARM dedicated, uh, well, ARM running laptops or even desktops for Linux. It's still interesting to have them, but we don't need them anymore to be competitive with what Apple creates. And also, do you know who will use these chips? Framework, as they've just announced that their new Ryzen-based revision will use either the Ryzen 5 7640U or the aforementioned Ryzen 7 7840U, with either 6 cores or 8 cores respectively. And Framework designed a thermal system 
to be able to handle up to 28 watts of TDP when the ships are under heavy load. These devices will come with two USB 4 ports, so you can even use an external GPU. And of course, you can upgrade your existing framework laptop by opening it up and replacing the current motherboard with the new one, even if you had an Intel-based model previously. Although you will probably also need to upgrade your RAM and the Wi-Fi card in the process. These new laptops are all pre-orderable today if you're interested, and they look like pretty great Linux devices, but I will personally hold out for the 16-inch model, which might be my first buy from Framework, just to see how well it works and if I like it. Now, while we're still on the topic of hardware, there's a refresh of a laptop from Tuxedo as well. Uh, they released their new InfinityBook Pro 14 Generation 8. Uh, the last one was Generation 7, obviously. I had a review, well, I still have a review of it on my YouTube channel. And so it's a business-focused laptop. It's a 14-incher, uh, and it still, it still keeps the same magnesium chassis in black or in silver, but it moves up to Intel's 13th-gen Core i7-12700H with Thunderbolt 4. It still has a 3K display at 90Hz in a 16x10 format, and it has 400 nits of peak brightness, and it can go up to 64 gigs of RAM and 4 terabytes of storage. So the model I reviewed was basically the same, but with a previous-gen uh, Intel CPU. Uh, it was a very good device, very solid, uh, very nice-looking, and probably something that most people could use uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, with the new model, you also get a 99-watt-hour battery, which means that they say it can go up to 16 hours of battery life. And you get the usual options that Tuxedo offers for the operating system. Uh, so that's uh, Ubuntu, Kubuntu, I think Ubuntu Budgie as well, and Tuxedo OS, which is a very, very good distribution. Basically a rolling release, but only for the things that really matter, uh, kernel, drivers, and desktop environments, which is KDE, plus the pre-installed tools for Tuxedo, like the Tuxedo Control Center, that lets you configure your webcam, create performance profiles, and the like. You also get the usual big choice of keyboard layouts and the ability to have your own logo etched on the lid. It's all, like, Tuxedo does that for every laptop. So this device starts at 1700 euros, sales tax included, and it looks like it lost the option to have a dedicated NVIDIA GPU inside, which the previous model had, if I remember correctly, you could get a 3050 Ti. Now they also have a 16-inch model, which is absolutely wonderful and the exact same model that I use every day to write the scripts and do some light video editing. And this 16-inch has dedicated GPU options. Now let's talk about Linux Mint. Uh, they already unveiled a few changes uh, coming to Mint 21.2 uh, with the revamp of how you select an accent color, how you theme your distro. You still keep the advanced options but you have a simpler, much more GNOME-like uh, setup to pick the theme you want and the dark mode or light mode or automatic and the accent color as well, which GNOME still doesn't have, by the way. And so now they're going to apply this accent color to other elements in the operating system. Uh, they will bring that to the tooltips when you hover over something. They previously used very square, uh, light yellow tooltips in the same style as what Windows XP did. And now the tooltip will be the same color as your accent color, a bit more padding, a bit more rounded to be more legible. I think it's a good change. But the system notifications will also be of the entire accent color with text written on top of it, which might be a bit much, uh, because if your accent color is blue, like light blue, 
it's okay. A light blue small thing that pops up in the corner of your screen might be a bit distracting. If your accent color is bright pink or, or heavy purple, it sounds like a recipe for having a very bad contrast ratio and needing eye surgery very quickly. Now they also replaced the icons they used before by symbolic icons in these notifications so they will look better on these full color notifications. And they also warned that an update from Ubuntu broke the compatibility of Mint's ISOs with Secure Boot, which means it has to be disabled for now to install Mint. Now they think they can maybe find a way to fix it, but they don't know when. They also continued working on Warpinator, which is a computer-to-computer -computer file transfer app, uh, very nice to use. It now supports Landlock and Bubble Wrap, which ensure that Warpinator cannot write anything outside of its dedicated download folder, so security is even improved a little bit more. So Mint 21.2 should release in June, and they also plan to release Linux Mint Debian Edition 6 soon after, and this one will be based on Debian 12, which itself will also be out in June. So you can expect uh, on the YouTube channel dedicated videos on Mint 21.2 and on Debian 12 when they release. Uh, but yeah, Mint at least, Mint 21.2, looks like a very solid one. Uh, plenty of polish, continuing the visual overhaul, and generally staying true to its roots. It, it looks like a good release, so can't wait to try it out. Now, since we're talking about Linux distributions, there is a new immutable Fedora spin-off coming. Uh, it's called Fedora Onyx, and it comes with the budgie desktop by default, but it's more comparable to Fedora Silverblue or Fedora Kinoite which are respectively the immutable uh, distributions running GNOME and KDE. And if you're wondering, an immutable distribution is a distro where the system is in a fixed state. You can't modify it, uh, nothing can write to it, uh, it's basically locked in place. So obviously, yes, you have ways to what they call layer a package on top of the base system image, but this will mean you'll have to reboot to actually boot on that specific system image with the new packages added. And it might sound absolutely horrible as an experience, but it is a way more secure experience. It's basically what the Steam Deck does, uh, where when you get an update, you get an update to the system image, and when you reboot your device, you reboot to the new image, which has been updated, and you always keep at least one old image to go back to it if you have a problem with the new one. What's interesting is that you can pair this with Flatpak applications, so you can still run any app because these don't install to the system itself, and you can also pair this with DistroBox containers, for example, which will let you run any other distro, have a development environment or any other program that you might want to install, but at least you know it's in a container, it can't override anything, and your main system is super safe and super secure. So basically, immutable distros are super interesting if what you're looking for is a very solid operating system base on which you can still do anything, but you won't do it on your main system, you'll do it on containers, basically. So, if the proposal goes through, Fedora Onyx will debut with the release of Fedora 39 in about six months. And it comes from the inexhaustible Joshua Strobel, which is the lead developer for Budgie, the one that also seems to have resurrected Solus, and the instigator of the more classic Fedora Budgie spin. So Onyx will use RPM OS 3, 
which is an image and package-based system that does let you layer packages on top of the system image, uh, like I explained before. So it's an interesting one. If you like uh, Fedora, if you like Budgie, but you want to try an immutable distro, well, basically, if you like Silverblue, but you would prefer to use it with Budgie, Fedora Onyx will give you that, and I think it's going to be interesting. And to wrap up the distro-related news, if you're still on Ubuntu 18.04, it's time to leave it. Uh, it reaches end of life at the end of May. Uh, as with all LTS releases, it got its five years of support. It had a good run, uh, but you should not use it anymore. You should move to the newer LTS releases like 20.04 or 22.04. And if you don't like them, well, you should move to another system entirely. Or you can always use Ubuntu Pro, which is Canonical's uh, service that lets you have 10 years of updates. So basically, it would bring your Ubuntu 18.04 uh, up until uh, 2028, uh, if I'm not mistaken, which is, yeah, it's pretty big. Uh, pretty big. Uh, it will bring you critical security patches for the district itself, for a lot of packages in the main repo and the universe repo. But you'll still be using Ubuntu 18.04, uh, which for a server is probably fine. For a desktop, you're missing out on a lot. Uh, you're basically one, two, three, four, uh, maybe five, five or six versions behind for GNOME at that point and for various applications that you install from the repos. Not fantastic. So yeah, I would encourage you, if you use 18.04 on the desktop, you should probably move on to at least 20.04. Uh, it's probably going to give you a way better experience. Faster, smoother, better drivers, better performance. There's not going to be a drawback to that. So yeah, and Ubuntu Pro, if you really want to keep using Ubuntu 18.04, Ubuntu Pro is free for individuals uh, for up to five computers. You just have to register an account on Ubuntu's website. I think it's an Ubuntu One account that you need to create. And then you'll be able to, I think it's just a command line you have to type. It registers uh, your system with Ubuntu Pro. And then you'll get the updates automatically without having anything else to do. But seriously, just if you use that on a desktop, move to something else. It's way too old. Now let's talk about desktop environments. And first there's a new update on Maui Shell, which is, if you don't know about it, a desktop environment using the KDE frameworks, but being based mostly on responsive applications, much like what KDE Plasma Mobile is doing, but in a different way. So this week they unveiled Maui Manager, or Maui Man for short, which is the configuration backend for the desktop and the apps that Maui runs. And this backend can be interacted with using Maui Settings, which is the graphical settings app for the Maui shell. It's still under heavy development, but it already looks pretty good. Uh, basically, in the screenshots, it looks like KDE's system settings, but cleaner with less options, but it's, it's got the same visual style. And yeah, I guess this is what happens when you start from scratch instead of carrying over decades of settings. Uh, you, you have a simpler experience, obviously, but I must say KDE did a great job of unifying and simplifying their settings these past few years. And yes, sure, it can still be overwhelming, but now you can add, actually find what you're looking for in their settings app, which is like good, I guess. Now on Maui Shell, they'll store all configs in plain text files in the true Unix and Linux fashion. And they have a public API to let applications interact with these config files, read the values, write new ones, and the like. And this also ties in with Cask, which is their window manager slash compositor, which can be interacted with with a public library, 
to ask it to draw shadows and to manage privacy settings for your open apps. So it's an interesting glimpse at how they're developing their desktop and their shell. And I must say, with Maui Shell and Cosmic from, uh, from Pop! OS, from System76, we're going to be spoiled for choice for modern, brand new desktops to try, play around with and use in the coming months or years. Uh, it, they're not ready, very obviously, but they're going to offer interesting alternatives to the usual established KDE, GNOME, uh, XFCE, Mate, Budgie and the like. Uh, they, they bring new visions, which are interesting. Uh, they might look similar on paper to what already exists, but they do have their own style and their own vision and their own technologies underneath them. And I think it's good, uh, as long as it doesn't create a huge monster mess of visual styles and the like, it should be good. Now we're going to talk about Plasma 6. Uh, in the KDE world, developers have been focusing on squashing bugs because that's apparently what you create when you start improving a full version from KDE 5 to KDE 6. Uh, but they also have some nice visual improvements to share. And the most notable one is how you will interact with panel settings. So basically when you enter edit mode on, on your KDE Plasma panels, you, you usually get these weird little arrows that aren't super clear about how to resize the panel. You get that menu which lets you align it, but it's all text-based and not super easy to understand how it works without clicking on the buttons to discover it. And so they are going to revamp all of that with a much better, much more visual choice that will actually represent what the alignment, what the visibility, what the opacity, or what the floatingness of the panel uh, looks like, which is really good. Uh, they also added a much better search feature to discover, which will put more weight towards the results where the name of the app matches your query. Right now, for example, if you type, I don't know, uh, email in discover, it might not surface email clients first uh, because, well, it's going to search through descriptions, through tags and through the app name. And so it's going to surface a lot of stuff that doesn't do email at all, but just refers to the word email in their description. Now, by matching first on the title of the app, you're going to have way better results and you're going to have like stuff that you actually want to install and that correlates to your search. And the results in the kickoff menu will also now be ordered in the same way as they are in KRunner, which means if you, for example, press the super key or what's the other name, meta key, uh, basically the Windows logo, and, and you start typing the name of an app, you'll get the exact same order as if you typed Alt plus F2 and did the same, which is more coherent and better for everyone. And the annotations in the screenshot manager will now also have a visual hover outline. Uh, the screenshot manager in KDE, which is called Spectacle, lets you annotate the screenshot directly before saving it. You don't have to open it with another app, which is really nice. But these annotations can actually be moved and it was not super easy to discover. So now when you hover over them, they're going to have a visual outline, which will tell you, yeah, you can click me, you can move me around. And that's really good. And they also fixed, well, like I said, a ton of bugs, uh, this time 208 bugs in one week, which is huge. So yeah, Plasma 6 will absolutely be a fantastic refinement. And it ties into what I just said about Maui Shell or Cosmic. We're going to be spoiled for choice in terms of desktop environments, which are modern, have new cool features, look good. It's really, really nice to have that vibrant desktop ecosystem on Linux.
Now we also have news uh, from Plasma Mobile. Uh, there are a few cool new things as well, uh, most notably new applications. Uh, there's a new one called Power Plant, which lets you list all your house plants and track their needs, like how much water do they need, or, or when did you water them last, or even their health. You can log in how the plant is doing over time. There's also Mark Note, which is a new application to write notes using Markdown, as the name implies. Uh, you can use notebooks, there's a list of applications, a uh, list of notes, sorry, and a what you see is what you get editing window. So you're, you're gonna be saving the notes as Markdown, but you can actually visualize in real time uh, the bold, uh, the italic, underlined, and stuff like that. And there's also Optimage, which is a new small app, which is an image size optimizer for PNGs and JPEGs. There's also a lot of work going into the core apps like Tokodon, which is the Mastodon client, Calendar, which is a contacts calendar and to-do list manager, NeoChat, the Matrix client, or AudioTube, the YouTube music player. And of course, as always, all of these applications will feel right at home on the KD desktop as well, because they're all adaptive, they will have an appropriate interface for mobile and for desktop alike. And since I mentioned Tokodon and Mastodon, uh, there's something happening there that a lot of people seem pissed about. Uh, Jürgen Roschko, which is the creator of Mastodon, posted an update to the onboarding process for the official Mastodon app on iOS and Android. So, you probably all know what Mastodon is, it's a let's say an alternative to Twitter, but it's decentralized, which means there are plenty of servers you can join and most servers can talk to most other servers. So for example, if you're not on the same server as me, you can still follow me and I can still follow you. And it has official clients, third-party clients, and it's part of the Fediverse, which means it can also interact with a lot of other social media services, uh, like Peertube, for example, you could follow a Peertube channel on Mastodon and get all your notifications and new videos in the Mastodon app. That's the kind of stuff that is enabled. And apparently a lot of people did not understand the concept of picking a server to create an account. This is very familiar for people who create email accounts. For example, you know you can pick from different providers, but that you can still send emails to everyone else and everyone else can still send you emails. But for social media, people are not used to that. They're used to have a Twitter account, not a certain server on Twitter. They used to have a Facebook account, not an account on a specific server of Facebook. So a lot of people did not understand that and through no fault of Mastodon, they explain it as legibly as can be on their website. They even have a, a server picker with which is not up to date and lacks a lot of servers, but it explains the concepts pretty competently. But people did not understand that concept and they did not understand that yes, even if you picked a specific server, you could still interact with people from any other server, unless it was blocked voluntarily. Uh, and so they decided, Mastodon decided, to simplify the account creation step in the official mobile app. So now when you start the app and you're not logged in, you'll get a button to directly join the mastodon.social instance, which is the biggest generalist server for Mastodon. And right underneath it, of the exact same size, you'll get another button to pick another server. But that button is less emphasized, it's sort of transparent, and it's not as visible as the previous one. And that's what a lot of people seem to have an issue with, because they think it's a push to promote the mastodon.social instance, and that everybody who tries to create a mastodon account through the mastodon app will then automatically join mastodon.social, 
and as such it will impede the decentralized nature of the network by making one server way bigger than the other and so if that server goes down or is bought or does something really weird then basically the whole network doesn't exist anymore because if you block that instance, if you block mastodon.social, let's imagine they become, I don't know, super extreme left wing or extreme right wing or, or they get bought by Facebook. Other servers might want to block it. But if you do that, if, if that means you're also blocking like, I don't know, 75% of Mastodon users, you basically are destroying the platform entirely. So I can understand why people are anxious about it. Some even go as far as to call the other button, which again is the exact same size as the johnmeistodon.social button. Uh, they call that a dark pattern because they think it's done on purpose to de-incentivize the picking of a server. I absolutely do not agree. That's not a dark pattern. That's a normal UI slash UX behavior. You have one main call to action and a secondary one that is smaller or lighter. It's not a link, it's a full-on button. It's not small, it's not a dark pattern at all. But I can understand the concerns. And the rationale behind this move to have this by default join mastodon.social, the rationale behind that is that it's better to have people sign up, even if a lot of people end up in one single instance, than having people not sign up at all because they couldn't figure out what a server was, why they needed to pick one, and how they could talk to everybody else. Uh, probably people think of Mastodon like they think of Discord. They're thinking, if I join this Discord server, I can't talk to other users on other Discord servers unless I join all of them. So I would have to create an account on every Discord server, well, on every Mastodon server that I want to use. That's probably what they think. And that's wrong. That's not how it works. So I can understand why Mastodon did that. They also said they boosted the infrastructure for the Mastodon.social instance, so it can handle the influx of potential new users, and they said they boosted the moderation capabilities to handle that as well, which was another concern. Uh, if you have too many people, then you have less moderators per post or per people. So it means that the instance might become more hostile because it's less moderated, because the same team cannot moderate a few million more users as effectively. So this is addressed. I personally think it's a good move. But it could have been made way better by simply rotating the default instance between other generalist servers. Mastodon.social is not the only generalist server. And I think Mastodon even have something called, I think it's the Mastodon Instance Covenant or something, which lets server adhere to certain moderation rules, which means they can be recommended by the official Mastodon website. It's basically a a contract uh, of good faith, good behavior, and, and good enforcing of rules. So they could have picked between, I don't know, let's say there are five of these generous instances that are part of the Mastodon Covenant. They could have rotated these uh, randomly, or let, let's say one week it's Mastodon.social, another week it's another instance. Who cares? But it would have been better and it would have looked better for users. Uh, because now it looks like the creator of, of Mastodon wants to push one specific server or instance, which goes against the very principles of Mastodon. So obviously the controversy will remain, and unless they decided to change how this button works, it will remain. But it won't end here because they also announced that they're working on quote posts, which are basically like a retweet. Uh, basically, for now on Mastodon, you can't take a post, and repost it by adding a little comment or phrase on top of it. You can just boost, which is sharing as is without any additional commentary. 
and they want to add quote posts, which are going to be like retweets with a commentary on top of it. And a lot of people do not want that. It's a very hotly debated topic. So I guess this first controversy will just be added to by the second one when they do a quote post. So yeah, as always, open source, alternative social media. There's a lot of very strong opinions and a lot of heated discussion. It's what makes it cool. Okay, and as always, we're gonna end this with the gaming news. So first we have the release of Wine 8.7, uh, which delegates parsing the shaders to VKD3D, which makes sense because, well, it's the library that translates DirectX calls to Vulkan, so it would be logical to have shaders be addressed by this as well. They also fixed 17 bugs, including for games like Street Fighter 4, Revolt 1207, Shapes on a Plane, Unravel, or finally, fa finally fantasy, final fantasy 11 online, sorry. So as always, this new version will probably have all these improvements make its way back into Proton. Uh, probably not the shader passing thing because Proton uses its own VKD3D version uh, that they build upon, but all the bugs will also be fixed in a future version of Proton, which uses Wine as its base. Now we also have FNA, which is a game development library or framework. It's basically an open source re-implementation of Microsoft's XNA runtime. Uh, this is something that is used by many game developers uh, and FNA is actually used in a lot of games individually, but also in a lot of Linux game ports. Uh, example of games that use FNA are Bastion, Axiom Verge 1 and 2, Rogue Legacy, Terraria, or Streets of Rage 4. And so this New release of FNA now supports Direct3D 11 using VKD3D and DXVK. They already had a native Vulkan and OpenGL renderer. But with this move, they show developers that DXVK is a thing. It's a real thing that works really well and that they can use to make native ports quicker, even if they decided to use DirectX as their graphics API. They don't have to redevelop everything to have a Linux game port, they can just use DXVK and fix the edge case bugs, which is probably going to lead to more indie titles coming to Linux, which is really good. And we also have the Steam Deck hitting yet another milestone this week, not in sales number this time, but in games uh, rated. It now passed 9,000 games rated as, let's say, playable and more, playable plus. Uh, there are now almost 3,300 verified titles. These are the games that will run without any issues on the Steam Deck and so on any Linux distro as well. And more than 5,700 games marked as playable, which might not run perfectly on the deck because it doesn't have a keyboard and mouse, but will probably very likely run perfectly well on any other Linux distro. And the number of unsupported games is now 2,900, which other games that no, do not run on the Steam Deck. Again, some of these games might run perfectly well on a regular Linux distro. It might just be that they can't have uh, a controller layout or that they're really not suited to a seven inch display. And of course, there are a lot more games on Steam that have not been tested by Valve at all and might run perfectly or not at all. But it's still a pretty big number of games uh, that you can play on the toilet on your Steam Deck. It's very nice. You're going to have a, a lot of toilet gaming time now. And finally, if you liked the concept of a game manager on Linux with all your games in the same place, 
but you just wanted a launcher and not a game installing tool, uh, maybe Lutris wasn't working for you. But now there's cartridges. It's a simple GNOME slash libadvita app that lets you import games from Steam, from Lutris, from Heroic Games Launcher, from Bottles, and from itch.io. It has a very simple front-end, it's all game art, it has search capabilities, it has animated covers, it can automatically download the covers as well, and it looks really, really good. So I guess you could just use Bottles, Heroic, Lutris, and Steam as just ways to get games installed on your system, and then only have in your dock or in your menu pinned somewhere cartridges to launch the actual games once you use another program to install them which is actually pretty cool as an idea. It's Yes, it's yet another game launcher on Linux, and we already have tons of those, but if you just want a very simple one that doesn't handle the install, just handles like listing your games and starting them, this one looks really good. Okay, so this will conclude this podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. As always, all the links to the articles are in the show notes, as well as the links to support the show, to follow me on Mastodon, or to watch my YouTube videos on Linux and open source. So don't hesitate to check them out. In the meantime, thank you all for listening, and I guess you will hear me in the next one. Bye!